Hello and welcome back to the Small Animal Clinical Podcast, brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jasani. Before we get into today's podcast, I just wanted to acknowledge the people that have taken the time to rate and or review these podcasts on iTunes. There are only a small number so far, but they're all um, five-star ratings, which is awesome. And thanks also to the two users, um, Charlie Tucson and someone going by the name of Hype User um, for the review comments. As always, I would love it if other listeners could spare the time to do the same. As I always say, it seems like iTunes is set up in a way that the more ratings and reviews you get, um, the more likely it is that others will find your podcast. So uh, shameless plug, if you can spare 30 seconds, get on there and, and rate and review the podcast. That would be great. Okay, so let's get on with today's podcast. I'm joined once again by a longtime friend and colleague, Karen Hum. Just to remind you, Karen is a lecturer in emergency and critical care here at the Queen Mother Hospital for Animals and one of the co-directors of the transfusion service. Um, So thanks very much for joining me again, Karen, especially so soon after your last time. Thank you for asking me. (laughs) Um, So look, today we're going to talk about the nightmare that is uh, lungworm in dogs. Now, I should explain to the listeners that we will be talking about um, Angiostrongulus vasorum, which is the canine lungworm that we have here in the United Kingdom and which is also found um, elsewhere in the world, and we'll touch on that a little bit later. We are obviously aware that there are other types of lungworm um, that affect dogs and also cats, but today we're focusing on canine angiostrongulosis, um, which is a bit of a mouthful, so I think I'm just going to call it lungworm. <laughs> so, Karen, I suppose the, um, the most obvious, if not the most exciting place to start is by asking if you could please explain to us what this worm is and tell us the key points about the life cycle and how dogs come to be infected. Okay. Um, I think it is exciting. <laughs> you look exci- so excited about no, that. I, I, do you know what? I, I totally am because I always think that with, the, with these parasitic life cycles, they're always amazing, aren't they? Because they're like this... Um, you just think, how did that evolve? You know, to, to go through different different animals and all these different stages, I always just think they're fascinating, okay, now actually. I'm to get a little bit worried about <laughs> I was going to say that actually, um, okay, I'm going off on a tangent here, but nonetheless, you know some of the stuff we learn as students, right, mm. you think, how does this apply to my life? And when I was a vet student, mm. parasite life cycles, I must admit, that was one of the things that I was just the least interested in, until you actually start to get to clinical situations, and you think actually there's some of these things that we kind of need to understand, at least to some degree. So I think I put parasite life cycles in the category of need-to-know knowledge on mm. a selective basis. But... No, but some of them are so cool. Like, do you remember there was one? And again, I can't remember its name, but um, <laughs> it, was a, it was some parasite that lived in large animals. And it went through ants. I don't know if you remember this one. And it went into the brain of the ants. And it affected the way the brain of the ants worked so that they walked up a piece of grass and stood on the end of the piece of grass, which would then encourage them to be eaten. I hope this is true, when, mate, otherwise. No, I'm sure this is true. I'm sure this is true. We'll have to find a parasitologist. And it was just, it was just like amazing the way these life cycles can work. And it's just, it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Okay. Um, okay. is. We need to stop this podcast. It's freaking me out. But Angiostrongulus is cool, but not quite that not cool. Quite but that it is cool. very, very interesting. Um, okay. Basically, the adults live in the right side of the heart or in the pulmonary vessels, and they lay eggs, and those eggs hatch really quickly. And L1 larvae um, are transported to the um, to the um, pulmonary um, vessels, to the um, capillary beds, and the they penetrate through them, and then then they're sat in the alveoli. And once they're sat in the alveoli, they get um, 
kind of moved by the ciliary apparatus up through the lungs and they're coughed as well, coughed up into the pharyngeal region. They're swallowed. <laughs> it's just amazing. They go through all this. They're swallowed. They go through the gut, passing the feces out. They're defecated out. And then um, they are... Um, they get into slugs and snails, presumably by slugs and snails, you know, going over the feces, um, and um, they develop within the snails to mm. through L1, L2 to L3 stage. Then the... Um, dogs or foxes, because they also live in dogs or fox, in foxes as well, um, either eat the snails um, or lick them, or maybe maybe they just lick some of their slime. We don't really know. Yeah, because um, there was something going around about that recently, wasn't there? Yeah. Looking at whether slug slime is Yeah, whether they actually need to ingest the actual yeah, animal yeah, or yeah. whether it's just the slime is enough. Um, and then um, they get swallowed, they go into the gut of the... Um, at the dog or the the fox, and then the L3 larvae um, migrate via blood or lymph to the back to the right side of the heart or the pulmonary vessels and develop into adults. And the cycle See, continues. And, the, the, I, and you, I just you think look, that's you fascinating. You look overwhelmingly fascinated. But don't you think that's amazing that that's evolved, that <laughs> I that's happened? I don't think I could comment really. <laughs> well, I think it's cool. <laughs> you carry on, but I've got my reputation to worry about. So. <laughs> All right, anyway, enough of that life cycle stuff. Um, so when I graduated, and don't, don't say it, but yeah, it was about 15 years ago, um, we, we were aware of lungworm, but I think at that time its distribution, um, both kind of nationally and worldwide, um, was thought, I guess rightly or wrongly, to be kind of relatively more restricted than it is at the moment. And mm-hmm. could you kind of tell us a little bit more about that and what we know um, at the moment in terms of geographical distribution, whether there are hot spots that people need to be more or less aware of? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because I actually don't remember being taught about it at vet school. I probably was. because you were a tad younger than I am. <laughs> was it a year or something? I can't remember. Yeah. I graduated Oh, you're too busy remembering life cycles to yeah, worry about. Yeah, probably. <laughs> it wasn't fascinating enough for me, no. Um, the, um, I don't really remember being taught about it. And I actually saw my first case when I came here as a resident. So wow. that was in 2005 because I'd been in Bristol, then up in... Um, or knowingly saw my first case, I mm. should say, up in Liverpool, and then came and saw saw it, and I I was completely flummoxed the first time I saw it, and someone else came and went, oh, that's lungworm. Mm. Um, so um, we, there's been increasing incidents reported basically this millennium, um, spreading throughout the UK, um, and in 2009 there was quite a bit of excitement with the first publicised um, cases or published cases in Northern England, so some cases of five cases reported by Liverpool University mm. and some practices around there. Then it's also in 2009, the first recorded case in Scotland. So the worm has been, or the parasite has been, seems to have been spreading throughout the country and spreading northwards. It's interesting, there's a little map on, that IDEX have on their uh, website which shows um, their self-reported cases, but um, or practice-reported cases, but... There is, seems to be still a much greater concentration in the southeast, but it mm. is definitely spreading. Um, and it has been found in Europe, in Italy, in Germany, in Holland for some time, but um, now there are cases reported in Canada, and um, I think it was, yeah, it was this year, there was a case reported in a fox in West Virginia. So it's now... Oh, really? The, yeah, oh, the United States. That. So, um, And they did some... 
Uh, computer modelling. A few years ago, a paper again showed that um, they think it could spread throughout the whole of the East Coast. The conditions are there. It's just once the, the parasite is there. So um, I guess you sort of answered my question, really, but because I was wondering that uh, is what we're seeing actual true spread or is it kind of greater recognition, greater looking, and therefore we're finding it in places where it already was? Mm. Or is it sort of both? And I don't know, like it sounds like probably it's both, but Probably a lot both. of spread with a little bit of increased yes. awareness or yeah, something. Yeah, no, you're, you're, I think you're definitely right. There, there, there will be definitely components of both, and I think that's probably important. What I said when I said in 2005 is when I knowingly saw my first case, whether I missed cases before, I'm not sure. Um, so you have to be aware of the disease to be able to diagnose it, and if it's not on your radar in terms of that doesn't happen in my part of the world, you're not going to diagnose it. But, yes, I think it is when a number of cases build up, then people are going to start recognising it. So, yeah. Um, actually, just thinking about that, um, we'll talk about it later because I want to, when we talk about surgeries and so on, because um, I, I was having a conversation with a vet recently, you know, about pre-screening cases, and we'll talk about that a bit later. Mm. Um, but yeah, you know, she was sort of not that far from where we are and perceived of never seeing a case. Well, Is it really that? Are they really kind of that? It does seem you know, to be um, that. I mean, my one of my good friends who worked as a medicine resident in Cambridge University and did medicine residency similar time to my ECC one, they barely saw it at all. Barely, and we were just getting loads and loads through yeah, the door. Yeah. And and again, it wasn't through lack of attempting diagnoses. They just so it does seem to be quite focal. Interesting. Okay. Um, so in terms of clinical signs and syndromes, then. Um, the potential for these worms to cause pathology is multifactorial um, because you have things like obviously just the physical presence of the worms, the larvae migrate, which you so eloquently and enthusiastically <laughs> described, um, and that migration can be quite random at times. So we know that some of the, the signs that we see can sometimes be because of what they call sort of aberrant mm. larval migration. Um, you get inflammation associated with the presence of the worms and their migration and, and so on. Um, so it's probably fair to say that we need to keep the parasite on the differential diagnosis list for, I guess, quite a wide range of syndromes mm. in dogs. But would you say there are some sort of some clinical signs that we would consider to be kind of more classical or more common than others, or not really? No, I think I think. When we think about cases, we often think about bleeding cases or respiratory cases, and they definitely can overlap as well, but those are your two classic presentations, a dog with a coagulopathy or a dog with respiratory difficulties. Mm. Um, and what you can sometimes op or often see is the dog that presents with a coagulopathy, once it may present with that, and that may be its most obvious clinical sign, but once you actually do your good physical exam, you know maybe it is a little ticket neck. Um, and see that as, a, as an afterthought. Maybe the coagulopathy is more obvious. But that's how we classically think coagulation, coagulopathy, respiratory um, distress. Again, without going off too much on a tangent, I suppose the complication there as well is um, <clears throat> when they have some, some respiratory compromise along mm. with kind of clinical bleeding is, mm. is that respiratory compromise because of bleeding in the lungs mm. or is it respiratory compromise because of lungworm in the lungs or mm. is it both or... No, not that it necessarily matters, I guess, but it's just kind of it's such a complex yes, and I mean, scenario, isn't that's it? That's really? it. You've got this verminous pneumonia going on. I love it. Verminous that. pneumonia. That's a word. Let's <laughs> just stop for a moment and applaud that word. I love it. Verminous pneumonia. It's good, isn't it? Fantastic. Um, so <laughs> I'm using that in the text for this podcast, by the way. <laughs> Verminous pneumonia. Right. So lots of inflammation, just secondary <laughs> to the um, to the parasites <laughs> themselves, and also, um, as you say, there's probably bleeding going on 
in there as well. So, yeah, we see probably a component of both. I, um, I didn't say it in my spiel at the beginning, but, you know, the reason that, that I asked you to come and do this podcast is I know you have a little thing for, for lungworms. So it's like you're, you're conveying your enthusiasm very well. Good, good. Which is awesome. Um, okay, cool. So <clears throat> respiratory and bleeding are, I guess, the two main syndromes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then would you say that um, neurological type of signs might be the third yes and so one. the neurological signs do as you say definitely a way they present and that can be in a variety of ways they can be um central um due to um or well, brain issues so they're all generally due to bleeding in the brain you can as you say have aberrant migration so there's been reports of um like larvae found in csf mm. um there's been reports of them found in the actual uh in the um I, but um, uh, but in general, we think that neuroscience are due to um, bleeding. So that can be bleeding into the brain or um, into the um, CSF. It could be bleeding um, around the spine. So they can rec- present in a lot of ways neurologically. But yeah, that's it's secondary to the coagulopathy. But yeah, it does. Because um, so it's our neuro service have seen, and not just ours, I guess, but like you know, mm. dogs that came in with. Signs of spinal cord disease yeah, or something. Yes, back legs have a T three L three myelopathy, but actually it's it's secondary to bleeding. And if it's an unusual signalment for a dog that presents, um, I mean, it sh- I guess it should be always to be on your differential di- diagnosis list. But if it's a very unusual signalment for a, a spine dog, then that should be something that we should think about. And actually, on the subject of unusual signalments. Um, I guess I was just remembering. I can't remember if you were involved in the in the letter that followed from it, but um, I think, from my recollection, we saw like a cluster of three cases or something, and then none for a while. I don't mm. know if we've seen them since, but I remember we saw a. Um, I think it was a cocker spaniel, young cocker spaniel with a hemoabdomen. Mm, yeah. And the question was, well, 30. why does a young cocker spaniel get a hemoabdomen? Mm. Because we know that. You know, the two differentials for that that we would think about would be one would be anticoagulant rodenticide mm. and that dog's coags were entirely not consistent mm. with that as a possibility. And then we think of, obviously, neoplastic ruptures, but it's mm. a one-year-old to two-year-old cocker spaniel. Yeah. Um, and trauma, and, so, and it had no And trauma. trauma. But again, we don't, and even then, we don't tend to see traumatic hemoabdomens in, like, a very significant way. And then yeah. he had no evidence of trauma, right? Yeah. So, so, yeah, that was one. I mean, I wasn't really involved. I was sort of peripherally around that case. But I remember we kind of... And then I think we saw, like, two or three, and then yeah. the, and the letter got written to the vet record. Yeah. And then I don't know if we've seen them much at all. There was, since, a, there was another report of one, I think, that went in the Irish Vet Journal, actually. So they do happen. But, yeah, you're right. I remember we had two in the same week, and one was... Yeah, it was a little Jack Russell, I think, was one of the Bizarre, other ones. So, again, right? an unusual signalment for a hemoabdomen. Um, mm. And so, yeah, yeah. It, it, it does do really weird things. Yeah, awesome. And... Um, so look, it would be entirely wrong of me not to not to ask you um, about the coagulopathy aspect. Um, so it's a simple question mm. with a not very simple answer, uh, I guess. But do we know how and why lungworm causes coagulopathy? It is a simple answer. No. <laughs> okay, move on. <laughs> no, no, we don't know, and it's a fascinating thing. There's some very clever people doing research in this area. Um, people talk, if you look in literature, there's people talk about this chronic DIC, and it's often a term used, which I think we don't, it's not really been fully described um, and really defined. Um, and this idea that there's maybe a low-grade consumptive coagulopathy. Um, there's one case report where they talk about um, von Willebrand's factor deficiency, but that's not really been consistently described. And it seems that there's a lot of different um, abnormalities described in a lot of different mm. cases, and there's nothing 
um, that is consistent. We don't have a consistent pattern of, say, prolonged prolongation of, of clotting factors or thrombocytopenia or um, you know, fibrinogen or anything, really, that's consistent through the cases. It's amazing, and we don't really know why, no. And actually, that, um, that position hasn't, as far as I can tell, that hasn't really changed in seven years or something since I've been interested in the area, if you like. That's not really something that seems to progress much. And we are obviously one of the... Because it's a very heavily UK-focused disease, mm. and we, I guess... I'm not blowing the trumpet of the RBC or whatever, but we, we are sort of one of the places that's very much into hemostasis and coagulopathy mm. and does research and so on. Um, I guess... You know, you would hope there would be people like us and might be able to shed some light on the subject in the end, but we, we, we don't appear to, as far as I can tell, have made much progress. And that's not a criticism because it sounds to me like we're probably looking at a multifactorial mechanisms anyway mm. and that we may just have to accept that there's lots of things going on. Yeah, and also maybe, the, maybe it's not just the parasite, maybe it's the way the dog is as well. So we know that dogs can, as we said, dogs really vary in the way they present. So it may be there's genetic factors involved. So mm. some dogs respond in a different way to other dogs. Um, there's quite a lot of work been done in Denmark as well. I know Bristol have done quite a lot of work looking at all this kind of stuff. And there may be, I don't know if there is new stuff coming out, but it's a lot of, like I say, clever people looking. That's a good point as well, actually, because um, we didn't really touch on it, but yeah, you know, why some dogs get more mm. respiratory type signs and others get more spontaneous hemorrhage type signs. And why some breeds seem predisposed. <laughs> I mean, you could say, is there, are those breeds that are more likely to interact with the vector and they're more likely to. Uh, to um, consume snails or slugs, or is it more that they are more um, susceptible to the effects of the parasite? Mm. Um, so, you know, we know that Staffordshire Bull Terriers are a classic kind of breed we'll see for this. Um, and is it that they're more prevalent within the areas that have a higher incidence? We don't know. There's yeah. just so yeah. much we don't know. Interesting. Um, and... I guess one of the things that we hear about relatively commonly um, is this kind of scenario where a dog has a surgical procedure done mm -hmm. um, and then appears to either bleed excessively during the surgery or, uh, from what I can tell, it's more often tends to be post-operatively, yeah. um, and then is diagnosed with lungworm. And I guess one of the things that um, <clears throat> I wanted to ask you about, because it was something that, that got put to me or put, put to us, actually, was this question of, well, should are we recommending that people screen all their surgery patients? And I guess if you just if you made it a little bit more simple and said, well, what about elective neutering procedures? Mm -hmm. okay, are we saying that you should screen every dog before you do an elective neutering procedure because one in whatever number might be positive for lungworm and might mm -hmm. go on to have a problem? And obviously the, the response to that is, well, that's crazy because what is the likelihood of that dog have, uh, you know, what is the prevalence of lungworm in your area? What is the likelihood of those dogs having a problem, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there is this kind of debate about, well, if we were saying, well, if you know your area is a particular hotspot for lungworm, would we then be recommending that people screen all their dogs before they have elective procedures done? Um, and it's, it's kind of one of those things, I'm not, there isn't an answer, and I sort of try to discuss with people and kind of rationalise what might be considered a reasonable position, and you need to have obviously the input of the pet's carers as well and how mm. they feel about it all. Um, I have certainly seen 
young dogs, especially um, both castrates but also bitch spays that mm-hmm. have then bled. And people immediately think of, you know, von Willebrand's disease or something like that. But we always need to think about lungworm as a potential. And we've certainly seen some cases where they were lungworm positive. And some of those cases have been reoperated on when it was entirely the wrong thing to be doing because mm. actually they were bleeding because of lungworm. Mm. So the consequences of them bleeding from a surgical procedure can be quite significant, really. Mm-hmm. But then how many cases are we talking about? Mm-hmm. So um, I'm kind of rambling, but what I'm really trying to do is to convey to the audience, I guess, that, that, that it's not a simple question to answer. But with all of that said, what would you say if I said to you, well, should I be screening all my elective neutering procedures for lungworm? No. <laughs> can't just say no. You can't well, go no. I guess, I guess the thing is, I would say Why not? it's like any pre-test, pre, um, pre-surgical test, and you could talk about, you know, should you be checking urea and creatinine on any animal before it has its surgery, or should you be checking for liver disease, or should you be testing any kind of thing like this when you're doing mass testing? Then you need to look, and if the you have to look at what the prevalence of the infection is in your population the risk of false positives the risk of false negatives the consequences of that and so therefore if you take you've got to take a huge amount of stuff into account you know if you don't neuter the animal because it comes up as a positive what then happens does what happens if that animal then gets pregnant what happens if that you know there are there are a lot of consequences to testing every animal and because there's a risk of well yeah i suppose what the, the essential question is what's the actual um instance of animals that will one be positive and two bleed due to the, and that's what we'd need to know before you'd have to decide whether or not it was worth doing the pre-op testing however my expectation is that's very low so um <clears throat> two or three things one hmm. The answer to that question about what is the the likelihood that this particular animal is positive, Mm. uh, let's assume we had a... uh, Well, I think one of the issues is this variable nature of reporting of the prevalence. And from this conversation I was having with Isabel, I mean, she works in London. Mm. She says in her part of London, they don't think they see this problem. Why 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 are we talking about it so much? Mm. And then a few miles down the road, they think they see it a lot. Mm. So, sure, I guess you have to have local data, and that's one thing. The second thing I guess I would say is that, and I'm not saying I think that everyone should be lung to testing, but I'm mm. just trying to pro- provide this kind yeah, of devil's yeah. advocate argument, is your urea creatinine, your liver things, these are things that are like, well, you know, what are you going to do that differently? I know we say we should do them, and it's interesting to know, yada, 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 about all that, right? Mm. But what are you going to do that's so dramatically different? You should be doing safe anesthesia. We recommend maintaining perfusion. Mm-hmm. So for me, I don't know how much I buy those arguments about those tests as pre-anesthetic screening anyway. And mm-hmm. we have had a podcast on this with Ian you know, when he was here as head of anesthesia and whatever and talked about this at length there so people can go and listen to that conversation about that. Mm-hmm. But the consequences, I suppose, of this problem are potentially, to my mind, significantly greater than whether you're urine cranning or up. And that's a different conversation. But I don't know. Like, I think it's, the stakes are a little bit higher mm-hmm. than I would say for those bloods. And... You know, you could say, well, don't let your dog mate, treat the dog for lungworm, come back in three mm. months and we'll do it then. Mm. You know, I mean, I'm actually, I, actually, I actually agree with you. Mm. <laughs> but I guess if I turned around and said to you, would you, if you had a new puppy, mm. right, I suppose you're going to say, well, I would be treating it right from the get-go, it, yeah. so I would never need to worry about it. Um, but let's say you hadn't. Mm. And would you, you would treat before you did an elective procedure on your own dog, wouldn't you? I would say. Treat. I would think. 
Um, yeah, I guess so. Because like I, I guess I treat. So that's. I guess that's the thing because you're looking at a population of people. That, that, so this is again, it's it's looking at the population you've got. So are you looking at a population of people who bring in their animal to be neutered? Do you just say to them, look? You, I guess it's cost as well, but do you just treat and say, come back in three months, or do you test and then say, well, you might or might not need to, why don't you just skip the test and just treat? If, mm. you re- if that's your actual issue, mm. if you really think it's that much of a problem, you say, I'm not going to neuter your animal unless, or you sign this form to say, if you really think it's that much of a deal, mm. then that's what I'd say. Mm. It's interesting because, I mean, I, my dog is sort of eight, and I've only had him for a couple of years, mm. rescue from Greece and you, mm. you know, all that anyway, but... Um, you know, since I started treating him routinely for longworm, I feel like the weight of a lot of stuff has lifted off my shoulders because where I walk in, there's always slugs and snails mm. and he does not eat them, but he likes to scavenge stuff. And, mm. you know, when you see this disease and you see what it can do, mm. it's such a, you know, like I'm just like, it, it makes such a difference to my psychology. Mm. And if he needed surgery one day, I'm like, well, at least he's treated for that, you know. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's just, it was an, because we, we've had, and when I was doing, you know, job out in, out in practice, supervising people in practice, I see and had conversations about enough post-neutering bleeding cases. Mm. Um, and obviously there weren't all lungworm cases, but mm. that it's not something that I think one can just not have a conversation about, because I think it is something that, like, I'm just one person with a certain amount of experience, but yeah. it's enough of my consciousness with conversations I've had with vets in practice that mm. it's something that I think it's worth us spending this time Did anyone discussing. actually do it? Did you know? Did you know anywhere who did routinely test beforehand? Um, I know practices where they are recommending it. Okay. But by no means are they the majority. Yeah. You know, and that's the conversation, really, is that, well, some people are like, well, surely that's crazy. Based on all the things that you've said about what is the likelihood of this dog being positive... What is the likelihood of having a problem? How reliable is a test? Shouldn't you just treat and not worry about testing? All those kinds of conversations, and I've heard it all. Mm. Um, but I do know some places where they're like, you know what, well, we'll just talk to the client. If there's a, it's it's a dog that's not treated, yeah. then we will say, well, would you like to treat and come back and do this later? Mm. Um, and I, I mean, I, I'm sort of in, I think I'm in the middle of this conversation really because I sort of see all sides of it. Mm. And when you're trying to provide a sort of discussion and advice, not specific to your own dog, Mm. but to what seems just generally like a reasonable clinical position to take. Mm. It's a slightly different conversation in a way, really, because we can't be naive enough to think that a general clinical position is always going to be what you do to your own dog, because mm. those two things are not yeah, the no, same it's necessarily. Yeah, versus so. looking at the individual. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's a, I think it's an interesting conversation, but I do know places that are actually just routinely recommending testing mm. and treating before any kind of elective procedure. Um, so that was the reason for bringing it up and going, <laughs> going on about it for a long time. Um, right, let's move on. So um, I think it's fair to say that, that kind of, um, for us at least, the normal sequence of events is that we are presented with a patient that has a history and or is showing signs that make us actually consider lungworm as a potential diagnosis, right? Um, <clears throat> and so we usually, I think, reach for specific tests to try and make that diagnosis. We don't very often, but we'll come on to this a bit later. And, tell, and again, tell me if you don't agree, but I don't think we very often do some tests, find some results, and then go, oh, maybe this dog's got longworm. Mm-hmm. Now, we do sometimes, but I think for me, in the vast majority of cases that I recall, we've had that very quickly on our radar, either from history and on physical exam or what's going on with the patient, to think, you know, well, we need to test for longworm pretty damn quickly in this case. Mm-hmm. I guess that's my... 
my perception. But so I guess the first thing is, do you agree with that? And then whether you do or don't, um, can you tell us how in 2014 we should go about making the diagnosis? Yeah, the um, I guess it's all been changed over the past few years because when I was again when we were when we were doing residency, when we were kids we, back in the day <laughs> um, we used to use Behrman, um samples, um, take fecal sample, send it to lab, and they would um, do a sedimentation, and that would take 24 hours for the result to come back. Um, and what you could do if you wanted things a bit quicker was do a fecal smear, but that was um, generally if you saw it then you could be fairly confident it was there, particularly if you had experience of looking at them. Um, but if you didn't see it, you couldn't say it wasn't there, if that makes sense. Um, and before I let you carry on, because whenever I say that, when I teach this stuff to people, I always say that to my recollection, mm. I can't remember a case where we did not find it on a smear or where they were positive, they were bleeding or they were dyspneic from lungworm that the lab then told us that that was the diagnosis. But that's my own experience, and I'm always interested to know whether... Because I think, for example, the medicine service may see cases that have got more vague respiratory signs or something, yeah. and they might find it as a diagnosis. Mm. But my own perception of the cases that we have seen as emergencies is that we've usually got that diagnosis before the lab have told us. But do you agree with that, or actually do you think... We, no, we did see... So we did Well, because did, I did that paper on looking at it with Sophie, and um, we, did, we did look, and it was, it was very interesting, actually, because one thing that was clear when I was going through it was that burden of lungworm wasn't necessarily, or Behrman burden, wasn't necessarily related to clinical signs. And there were some cases where we didn't find it on smear, okay. but we did get it on Behrman. Cases that came through us yes, know, were there clinically were, there, there were well. some, but I think you're right. Usually we found it on those cases, cool. but not always. Before I let you carry on, we should just say that Sophie is Sophie Adamantos, who mm. is uh, another diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care. And is currently working as a lecturer. I think she... I can't remember her official title because she's she's at Langford Veterinary Services. So she's currently working at Langford Veterinary Services at Bristol, but was um, here at the RVC for... 10 years? Something long, like time. That? long time. She is yeah. very clever about lungworm. She is very clever about lungworm, exactly. All right, so you were saying that we used to do Behrman and sometimes we did a fecal and mm-hmm. a fecal smear and I stopped you... Mm. There, so where where are we where are we doing now? So we now have the IDUX angiodetect test, okay, um, which detects, and the way they put it is an antigen released by the adult angiostrongulus nematodes, um, which can be run on a blood sample. The test can be run on a blood sample, and you get an answer within minutes. So that's fantastic because that's a, a quick and apparently more uh, sensitive method than the smear. So it's a, it's a really good thing to do. Do you know, um, we're going to talk about that in a minute, but do you know, uh, it's not something you do very often, obviously, but would you be able to run it on anything other than blood? Uh, do you think? Like CSF or a bit of ooh. respiratory fluid or something? <laughs> do you know? I, d- I don't think it's been validated for that. <laughs> I was just thinking about it sitting here. I was like, yeah. I wonder if you could. Like if you had a neuro case and you did a CSF on it, could you? I mean, you'd be like, why would you want to use some blood? But anyway, all right, fine. Let's, let's move on for that. Um, so you just said, but I guess I want to reiterate this, that do we know, because um, obviously one of the questions that we always want to know, and we sort of, I guess, touched on this when we talked about my whole debate about mm-hmm. pre-screening, do we know how well this test performs in terms of sensitivity, specificity, etc.? cetera? Um, and then that's going to lead me on to asking you, well, are we now saying that, oh, don't worry about doing faecal testing, or is there still a role for faecal testing? So the first bit first about how well the test performs, and then... 
what are Do the bother. implications for okay. people testing? Yeah. So um, there's data on the IDEX website, and that shows a sensitivity of 98.1% and a specificity of 99.4%. I had to write these down. I <laughs> um, oh, shouldn't have said that. So say that again. So sensitivity of 98.1% yeah. and a specificity of 99.4%, and yeah. that's using Behrman as a gold standard, okay. which is... There are some issues with because we suspect that Behrman probably doesn't get them all. Okay. Um, so it could be that when it has a, a specificity, which is obviously very high, of 99.4%, it could be that in those cases, actually, the angiodetect was correct and the Behrman wasn't because we know that they can be intermittently um, passed in the faeces. So and do you, when they do, you, you may not know this, but when they did the Behrmans for comparison, did they do like sort of serial samples? I think it was a one day only, one, day one sample. sample. Okay. Was my and I looked for that because it was interesting. Sure. But I, I think from it wasn't a lot of data on there, but it looked like it was just one sample. And then there was also a paper published this year, also using Behrman as a gold standard, which found a sensitivity for the test of eighty-four point six percent and a specificity of a hundred percent. Okay. So good. So it's good. good. Um, are you are you comfortable enough to explain? I don't mean this in, in, a, in a horrible <laughs> way, but I know some people really struggle with those terms and explaining them, and I and I do too, to be honest. But uh, are you comfortable with explaining to the, to the listeners what sensitivity and specificity mean? Or yes, so that mean, I mean, mean it, question. No, no, it's, it's 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 a good question because what's always really important when you look at your sensitivity and specificity is that they do vary depending on the sample you're looking at. So this was done in, in cases where angiostrongulus was suspected. So when we go back to your case of if you're just testing any blanket testing animal, the sensitivity and specificity can change. Hmm. Um, but um, if, you, um, if you look at um, the sensitivity, the way I think of it, which is slightly backward, is um, what's your your risk of false negatives. And if the sensitivity is high, then your risk of false negatives is low, okay? If your specificity is high, then the risk of false positives is low. That's the way I think of it, to think yes. of it simply, because yes. sensitivity has an N in it and specificity has a per in it, P in it. Sorry, it's talking about phonics with my little kid. Sorry. No, no, it's good. It's good because, um, I, I, you know, like, again, I... Um, I, I just, I'm one of those people that for a long time just struggled to remember which way round it was mm. until I found something that... Do you have a way of remembering Well, it? I do now, but it's only in the last three months. Until mm. now, I've been always been like, which way round is it, which way round is it? So mm. I came across this thing, which is spin and snout. Okay. And ever since then, it's been easy because spin is specificity and it rules it in and snout okay. is negative... Is, uh, Sensitivity and it rules it out. Yes, it's sort of what you're saying. It's a yes. way of remembering. Yeah, it's really. just so, a way of remembering. So if you've got high specificity, then you're ruling this thing in, and mm -hmm. if you've got a high sensitivity, you're ruling this thing out. And it's yes. a, another way around of what you said. Yes. But yeah, because I just I, I just struggled for years. Even when I was doing board exams, I was like, oh Christ, yes. way around it. Luckily, um, with so, this, they're both pretty high. <laughs> they're both pretty high. So you don't have to worry too much. Yeah, because it's important, right, that, that we know which way around are, and, and these. Especially in this day of evidence-based medicine and stuff, we people need to become more familiar with not just going, well, you know, yeah. this is a test that we use, but actually how good a test is and how well does it perform and all that stuff about pre-test probabilities, mm. et cetera, et cetera. This all supposed to be becoming part of the conversations that we're having more nowadays, which is not just, oh, here's a test, but actually 
you know, how good is the test? <laughs> right? mm. and, then, and then, like you're saying, it's not just about how good is the test, because that's a bit simplistic too, because it's about who are you testing yes. before you can answer what's how good the, the test is. What's the likelihood of them having it in the first place? Yeah. But yeah, I suppose just to, both the specificities were very high, so the likelihood is, if your test is positive, the likelihood is it does have it. Yeah. The sensitivities are, well, like I say, 98.1%, 84.6%, so if it says it doesn't have it, it probably doesn't have it, but it's not quite as convincing yeah. as the other way around. Does, yeah. that, does that make it okay? Yeah, I think so. I hope so. I mean, I'd say, I guess everyone needs to um, figure out their own way of remembering these things. And also you asked, is there any point doing the bare minimum? Yeah, don't I wasn't going to let you not answer that. <laughs> um, is there any point doing um, It's hard because does take longer it's another expense um and um this test is pretty um is pretty good i haven't put one in recently um so because i guess one of the things that when i used to um so my, my position on teaching of this before had been well my own personal experience is that when i have a case that i think might have long worm um i used to usually t- i typically find it on a fecal and we've mm. had that co- like on a fecal smear and we've mm. had that conversation yeah, yeah. already but then one of the arguments we'd say was even if you found it on a fecal smear, was still to send the bearman. And one of the reasons for doing that was to kind of characterise the, the load, really, to see just how bad the problem was, if you like, way. Mm. Um, and you're obviously making the point that you need to send maybe serial samples rather than mm. one sample. So I guess I, I used to say, well, there was probably still a recommendation to send a bearman even if you'd got it on a smear mm. to characterise the burden of the, the load, if you like. And also to speciate them because there are other ones which Random. do have live larvae but I think the likelihood if it's got clinical signs consistent with angiostrongulus you've got live larvae in the faeces it's probably going to be angiostrongulus um, and then because I think people also then say well you know you could run repeat bearmans to see mm. that things are clearing yeah um, so I suppose that argument if it's even a valid argument then that to me I guess that should still be a relevant argument no even though we've got the blood test now because the blood test is not giving us severity of, of Burden. burden it's just saying antigens are there or not right yes however if they're treated and they do clear then the and antigen gone. goes away and the test becomes negative and also as i say actually because um output of larvae varies from day to day so they may produce two larvae one day and you know per gram and then 500 the next day per gram of feces we don't know whether it's consistent and so actually it may be that having a burden might not be that useful um, and sorry, we're just laughing because my microphone is slipping. Um, let me a second. <laughs> so the the other question is then: Are we basically comfortable enough with this blood test now that we're going to say we're not really running fecals? Because I guess Bairmans. we are diamonds. Yeah, mm. we, I guess we're supposed to have some sort of position on these things, given that we teach mm. people. Um, um, you know, like because because I, I know when the test was first released, one of our questions was well. We need to be comfortable with how well it performs before we abort fecal testing, right? Because mm. obviously it's been a great step forward. Because I used to sort of spend a lot of time trying to convince practitioners that they should be doing fecal smears, mm. you know, in emergency settings. It's like, well, that better be great to get your diagnosis. And it's always a bit like, well, do it, is micro- microscope working? Are they confident doing it? All that mm. kind of thing. And obviously we've been doing it for you know many years. Um, but yes, I mean, are we? Are we? I'm getting the sense that we're basically saying that we're not sure there's a point anymore. I guess the thing is there were... Like, you're not, you're like not allowed to sit on the fence on my podcast, That right? sensitivity, <laughs> that sensitivity is... Um, that sensitivity isn't perfect, so there is a risk of false negatives. 
not a huge risk, but there is a risk of false negatives. So if you get a negative result and the animal really does look like it has it, I would submit one. Okay, cool. And is your pager okay? It's not, not yes, number it's nine not, or anything? Not <clears throat> okay, good. You can't go then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Um, okay, look, so um, we've already touched on this question about whether we see a lot of our cases that are showing signs and we test them and we get a diagnosis. Um, are there any other tests that either we would recommend doing or that if we weren't suspicious of the diagnosis, we might be doing these other tests that might make us then think, oh, we should stop and think about lungworm as a diagnosis. So any other kind of investigations, diagnostic tests that you think that might be relevant to our conversation here about lungworm that we want to touch on or not really? Um, I mean, sometimes it can be picked up as an incidental finding. Like, it's been, I know when it's been sent, feces have been sent away and Behrman has been accidentally ticked and they found it. I know of that. Really? Um, and, um, but um, usually... If they're showing respiratory signs and you're not sure what's going on, they've got a very specific, um, typical, sorry, radiographic pattern. So there's a peripheral um, alveolar pattern is very typical for angiostrongosis. So maybe that wasn't on your differential list, it wasn't something, and then suddenly you see that pattern that might go, oh, okay, really want to think about angiostrongosis now. Um, sometimes they can present for, I had a case once presented that for hypercalcemia. Um, but like I say, often once you realise they've got lungworm, you start to realise maybe that actually there are other things that fit on the physical yeah, exam that you hadn't sure. quite, or history that you hadn't quite put together. Before. I mean, I guess there are stories of dogs with sort of respiratory signs that have had thoracic radiographs mm. that have had a lung pattern that's typical, suggestive, consistent, mm. whatever word you want to use. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to start talking about the sensitivity and specificity of thoracic radiographs mm-hmm. for this disease. But um, that, that we then, I mean, or maybe less us and maybe medicine more, but I don't know, but like that, that might have prompted testing. Yeah. Um, and, but I think we, we and other people that see the disease have become very kind of, I don't know, fastidious about checking pretty early mm. um, so that we hopefully don't get caught out. Caught out. Yeah. Mm. Okay, awesome. Um, and just, I guess, just for completeness, just to recap on what you said. So you said that we might find lung patterns on thoracic radiographs that mm-hmm. might be consistent. Hypercalcemia is something that has been reported. Mm-hmm. Um, hyperproteinemia mm-hmm. from globulins mm-hmm. in particular. Um, maybe some thrombocytopenia may or may not be present. Yeah. Maybe prolonged prothrombin time, PTT, PTT yeah. but maybe not. Mm-hmm. And um, people talk about eosinophilia, and I think that's variable. You may see that, but I think people often think, "Oh, it's a parasitic disease." They'll see an eosinophilia. Yeah, that's, that's another. That's not, another conversation. That that's we, certainly that, not um, consistent finding. I might try and get a clinical pathologist on the podcast yeah. and talk to them about eosinophilia because. Um, sensitivity and specificity of eosinophilia and parasitic disease. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, and then other things like D-dimers and so on. I mean, again, these are conversations, and a lot of people are probably possibly not running them. We, we do have the, the TEG, and we run that in some cases. We have platelet function tests, and we mm. run those in some cases. But as we said right at the beginning, in, in the coagulopathic ones, these test results are not predictable, really. They can vary quite mm. a lot, right? So. Okay, cool. So let's move on and talk about treatment and then prevention. Um, I guess just to always remind the listeners, we're both ECC people, so it'd be wrong not to, that um, we need to start with stabilization as required before we worry about sort of specific therapy for the parasite. Um, So, for example, we might be talking about oxygen supplementation if they're dyspneic. We might be talking about volume replacements and red cell transfusions 
if there is clinically significant blood loss in a coagulopathic patient. Before we talk about the antiparasite therapies, um, there's, some, there's another little chestnut that we need to cover, which is basically, what do we know about using plasma um, to treat lung wound cases? So if I have a dog that has evidence of spontaneous bleeding, mm-hmm. let me give you two scenarios, I suppose. The one is it also has clotting times that are prolonged in a significant way, and we're not going to discuss what that means specifically. But So it has prolonged clotting times. Should we give this dog plasma? to try and normalize those clotting times. And then as a sort of add-on, what if it, even if it doesn't have prolonged clotting times, would we give it plasma? So plasma, yes or no, prolonged clotting times, no prolonged clotting times. And they're both bleeding? And the patient's bleeding, yeah. Okay, because I think it's also interesting to consider if they're not bleeding yeah, and they've no, got absolutely. prolonged clotting times. Yeah. But I guess if they clinically, they've got clinical evidence of bleeding and they've got prolonged clotting times, I would administer fresh frozen plasma, yes. Um, and, you know, obviously that can be bought through Pet Blood Bank. So it's available if expensive. It is available to people in practice. Um, and they may not be anemic, so they don't necessarily need whole blood, but I would provide plasma in that situation. If their clotting times are normal and they are bleeding, oh, it's a more tricky one. <laughs> I have certainly have given them plasma in that situation okay. because I feel like, although they may not be... Um, if they're clinically bleeding... I, and it also, I suppose it depends on their platelet levels, but generally they're not bleeding. They're usually bleeding in a large cavity sense, in a secondary coagulopathy way, rather than a thrombocytopenic way. These dogs, I don't think, I can't recall ever seeing a angiostrongosophy, can you, with thrombocytopenic, like petechiae or anything like that? Um, I think I've seen ones that have had petechiae, but mm. I guess, but I would say that they were not particularly thrombocytopenic, and I think we assumed it was a systemic vasculitis, vasculitis kind of thing dysfunction yeah. type of situation rather yeah than so i think the ones that are usually bleeding are bleeding like i say in a secondary coagulopathy kind of presentation in terms of cavity bleeding so i may well give them plasma <laughs> um and then the, let's touch on the question that you you brought up which was a good thing that i hadn't thought of was um what if they're not bleeding but they have prolonged coags um, well, we see this a lot in a lot of different situations, actually. So dilutional coagulopathies post, you know, a lot of fluid therapy or maybe a consumptive coagulopathy. Um, if they're not bleeding, I don't tend to administer plasma because of the risk of transfusion reactions, because of the expense of the product, because it's sometimes just chasing a number. Like, you know, how much do you give? How do you keep giving plasma until that number normalizes? Mm. Um, and so I probably wouldn't in that situation, though I'd be monitoring carefully for any side effects of, um, from, for any evidence of bleeding and also warning their owner that might happen. But you could just keep giving plasma to try and normalize a number and not have, you know, spend literally thousands of pounds. Um, so two things. One is to remind the listeners that you and I did this podcast on transfusion medicine. Mm. So they go back and listen to that. And we talked about primary versus secondary hemostasis um so if they want some clarity about all of that um the other thing is uh, not really to discuss per se but just to so that scenario where you might have a patient um that has prolonged coags mm. um and may or may not be bleeding but i guess what comes to mind is um some of the snake envenomations and there's mm-hmm. a debate about whether actually giving plasma is sort of adding fuel to the fire for those patients mm-hmm. and whether you might making things worse not better mm-hmm. because of the venom and so on so i guess it's just to sort of bring up the thing that giving plasma is not always entirely benign either no. right? and depending on what's going on but but also i suppose to to be clear really that part of the reason for asking the question for these things is that we don't we would be honest enough to say that we're not really sure right mm-hmm. um 
Cool, let's move on because uh, you're someone definitely someone desperately wants you. Um, so, okay, fine, let's move on. So, what are we going to talk? We're going to talk about the anti-parasite treatments, really. And I guess the question is, can you clarify, um, you know, which are the licensed products and what we should therefore be using? That would be great. Okay, so there's two licensed products on the market that I'm aware of. There's um, imidacloprid moxidectin, which is a spot-on, um, and that's produced by Bayer as Advocate. And there's milbamycin oxime in conjunction with praziquanto, which is milbamax, which is made by, on the market, is milbamax made by Novartis. And they're both licensed for treatment of um, lungworm. Okay, so two, two options there. Um, in terms of the treatment. And then I guess one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, obviously we know about the whole kind of, we used to use um, fenbendazole as our first line agent. Mm. And a lot of us grew up on using fenbendazole. Mm. And then these products became licensed for treatment. And mm. one's a topical spot on mm. and one's a, ta- a tablet, palatable, yeah. edible tablet. Mm. And, you know, is it just me that psychologically just one dose of something... <sighs> You know, psychologically, doesn't quite feel right. Um, but but I know it's not just me because I know I've seen enough people that have given that plus fenbendazole. Yeah. Um, but so, like, you know, just yeah, a couple of comments about that would be great. I mean, well, yeah, you're right. When we started, we didn't have a licensed product, and so we used fenbendazole down the cascade because I think it's licensed for Chronosoma vulpus. I yeah. think that's how we got there. It down the cascade is like well, the closest thing we could find. Um, uh, so they've compared them. They've certainly compared. Um, it's milbamycin to um, turf and benzol, not found a statistical difference between cure rate. But milbamycin, oxy, the milbamax treatment, they recommend one tablet, uh, one dosing a week for yep. four weeks. Yep. So, um, and checking afterwards, and if you still see parasites, then you might need to repeat that. And the same for um, the imidacloprid moxidectin. Um, they're not com- claiming complete cure rate with, with, single, um, with, with the single, single dose. Single yeah. dose. Yeah. Um, and I think that what, what is nice about the spot-on treatment is that if you have a very dyspneic patient, you're not having to pill them. And I think that was often the thing with um, the yeah. fenbendazole was actually just getting the powder into the animal. You know, if these animals were very sick, it's very hard to get it in. Yeah, it was a nightmare, right? And Because um, it was once a day, I think it was, but it was every day. Mm, and, yeah. yeah, that was definitely a challenge. So, I mean, I think, um, you know, like I think a lot of things we get more, more used to it and, I mean, I, we, I don't think we use fenbendazole no, I routinely don't. anymore at all. Um, and certainly these therapies, you know, I think we, we tend to use them. And as you say, but monitor the patient and use mm. them as per protocol, right? And people can find the protocols for those in various resources. Mm. Um, what about glucocorticoids? Is there any role for those in the treatment of canine longworm? Yeah, I mean, we use um, dexamethasone, again, injectable rather than oral um, glucocorticoids if they're in marked respiratory distress um, to try and ameliorate the effects, basically, of the parasitic death um, because we worry that if you have a large parasitic death burden, dead parasite burden, that's going to really worsen that verminous pneumonia. (laughs) Um, And then um, you really have this sort of marked immune response going on in their lungs and if they're respiratory distress already, I wouldn't routinely use it. It's just for those dyspneic patients. So I tend to use it at at, um, anti-inflammatory doses. Yeah, and so, like, I think that's... um, Because that's a phenomenon that applies to some other parasites. I I seem to remember when we were studying for board exams and stuff, there's parasites that we never see in this country, but Mm. that using anti-inflammatory doses of steroids is part of the therapy Mm. because of people's worry about... um, 
progressive pathology associated with parasite death. Mm. And I guess it's not just the, the lung ones, right? I mean, if you had a severely neurological altered mm. patient, you might consider mm. the same thing. Okay, so you might, give, you might give steroids, but we're talking about short anti-inflammatory courses yes. and not sort of sustained therapy. And also not routine. Like and not routinely. Mm. Okay, cool. And then last but definitely not least, before I let you go, is mm. um, about going about protection and prevention, really. So... How can we try and protect dogs from um, from this parasite? And are there any licensed preparations that we can use in that regard as well? My understanding is those drugs, the Advocate and Milbimax, um, are not licensed for prevention. They're licensed for treatment. However, if you are using them regularly, the likelihood is you should be causing. Can some I ask you protection. if you're sure about that? Uh, I'm fairly sure. <laughs> okay. I looked. I did look and okay. look again um, last night because that's what I thought. And I looked again last okay. night to double check. I okay. don't think they are licensed for treatment. Did you think they were for prevention? Um, I again. I, this is terrible because I. The last time I checked, I seem to remember that. I seem to remember that one of them is and one of them isn't. But mm. that if you've looked more recently than me. <laughs> What we need to do is we need to have a postscript to this that finds out whether that ant parasite exists. I'm not doing that and find that, I'll find that out for you. And then, and then you can also um, find out. You, can, you find out about the prevention I'll do that. and I'll find out about the ant parasite. Well, no, but seriously, when, when, we, when I put the podcast up, I'll, I'll put it in the notes. Because, so again, it might have changed and I, I might be misremembering because I seem to remember that... In fact, I think practitioners often point it out to me because obviously they're, yeah. they're often more familiar with, with this. The, that, with the prevention rather than the actual prevention treatment. that yeah. one is, and because I mean, I use I use Advocate in my dog. Mm. Um, we're not plugging Advocate per mm. se, but you know, there were only two options really at the moment. Mm. So, um, so he gets that, and I think if my recalling, the reason I chose that was because it was the one that was licensed for prep for prevention as well mm. as treatment. But we might mm. be we might be misremembering we'll that. And then I guess other measures in terms of trying to minimise exposure. Um, yeah, people talk about molluscicides and um, trying to um, prevent them from eating them. I think it's really tricky. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, one thing I read actually was about, well, actually, you know, even if you kill the slugs, the, the larvae are still um, alive within them. So, actually, if your animal is prone to eating them, and also notwithstanding all the, the risks of slug bait Well, it's good, good you mention that, actually, because, yeah, it's the last thing we need is... Um, yeah. And, and then also, just the practicalities, right? I mean, where, you know, what my dog, and I'm not walking him in areas... I mean, I would never put a molluscicide down, but mm. even if I was going to, like, they're not areas that I'm allowed to, right? Yeah, they're you're not going to be able to so. follow him around with sprinkling tablets. Yeah, thankfully, he just looks at them and goes whatever and walks on. But, um, mm. you know, like you say, you don't know what, what, what he might be exposed mm. to. Okay, awesome. Look, let me let me stop and let me let you go because someone's desperately for your attention. Sorry. <laughs> um, so that's wonderful. And um, I think that we've pretty much covered, I think, all of the things that, that we needed to. And I will make sure that I look about the uh, prevention thing and, and specify it um, on the website when we post the podcast. Um, was there anything else you think we've forgotten or do you think we've covered everything no, that we need to talk about? You've asked some lovely questions. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So to the listeners, as always, and do feel free to get in touch and give us your feedback. Um, and if you have any topics that you'd like us to do a podcast on, then let us know. And you can email me directly at schasani at rbc.ac.uk. You can use the Royal Brentley College's Facebook page uh, where there's an album that actually has photos um, related to the podcast. And you can tweet at Royal Vet College using the hashtag SAClinPod. And until next time, then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.